From the Los Angeles Times, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Jen Yamato. This week, we're revisiting our very first episode, the conversation that kicked off season one with the actor John Cho. You might know him as Harold Lee of Harold and Kumar, or as Sulu in the Star Trek movies, or even as MILF guy number two from American Pie. His films also include the acclaimed indies Columbus and Searching, and the highly anticipated Cowboy Bebop movie coming this fall. In this episode, Asian Enough co-creator Frank Shang and I debuted the podcast with a revealing conversation with John, who opened up about how becoming a father helped him understand his own parents, how he wrestles with the complexities of fame, and the emotional scars that racism often imprints on Asian Americans growing up. I look around and I think I see, um, and this is different from our fathers. Our fathers did not grow up with that. They, they, they come here and they experience racism, but nobody's changing their minds about who they are. You know, my dad is Korean. He's a man. He's proud of who he is. He, he knows who he is. And you can ching chong him to death. He doesn't give a shit. But us, his, his sons, we're different. We, when we were soft and malleable, we got told we weren't worth anything. And then we believed them. When we first aired this episode, the coronavirus pandemic had recently exploded. And as COVID numbers skyrocketed, so did reports of anti-Asian racism and violence. A month after this episode came out, John penned a moving op-ed in the LA Times speaking to the experiences of many Asian Americans during the pandemic. He wrote about the instinct to be American enough so that racism might skip over us and the very real fears many of us still have for the safety of our elders amid continuing anti-Asian violence. He wrote about making that phone call so many of us have made in the last year begging our parents to be careful just leaving the house and to stay safe. Our conversation with John Cho coming up in a sec. Stay with us. How's it going? Thanks for thanks for coming down. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, John, we were thrilled when you said yes. Uh, what was it about our podcast that made you want to come on? LA Times. It's my hometown paper. Secondly, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I've just become really interested in the medium. And then thirdly, I was, um, a few months ago, I was listening to a David Chang's podcast. Mm-hmm. And he had, um, I can't remember the guest now, but he's had a few Asian Americans on. And when they got into culture, it was so unique. Or I realized it was very foreign to hear Asian Americans speaking to one another in media. And I realized also, and I called my, a buddy of mine and we, who had the same reaction. He was so excited to hear it. And it wasn't anything explicit. It was just like the, the tone was different. I realized also... At that moment, I'd been talking about being Asian my whole career to white people, 
and I thought, oh, I have to make a concerted effort to talk about these things that come up uh, to Asian Americans. And I, I would like Asian Americans to hear that conversation. Uh, well, we're going to start out by talking about, I guess, your childhood. John um, Cho, is this cool? is your life. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so your family came to the U.S. in the 70s. Um, yes. You grew up in a bunch of places, including like Monterey Park and, and went to school in Glendale. What was that like? Which component of that? Um, Growing up in Monterey Park. Oh, Monterey Park. I, I didn't. I was there very briefly. I was born in Seoul. Was there till I was six years old, and then came to Houston, Texas. Went to elementary school in Houston. Then the roaming started. We went to I think Seattle, Daly City, San Jose, uh, Monterey Park. Yeah. Uh, and we settled in Glendale. So the year you kind of went off to college was, was 1992, right? Mm, 90. Mm -hmm. 1990, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, because I was wondering, yeah. I was wondering like if the riots, you know, happening in L.A. with your family here, if that oh, had— Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I was, um, I was in college when uh, the riots happened. At Berkeley, right? Yes. Yep. Um, and I remember— Go Bears. Uh, Go Bears. I remember being very distressed— at seeing, well, I mean, the whole situation. And then when I saw the men going up on the roofs. Mm -hmm. um, in Koreatown. In Koreatown yeah. with their guns. I mean, some people, I think, experience it as pride. Like, you know, these men standing up for what's theirs. And I experienced panic. Like, they're going to die. This is going to cause more bloodshed. And I was freaked out. And these are like the images you're seeing in media because you're like all over in Northern California. That's right, yeah. These are images of Korean business owners defending their, their businesses. Essentially, though, they're all veterans. The, the, the military service is mandatory in Korea. So these are, these are men, who, you know, they're not hunters. They're like, they're, they were trained in the military. They can take apart their rifle and put it back together. Um, so I don't know. It was a different crowd up there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. I just ask because people grow up in L.A. during that time period. It's this They talk about like a Korean sort of racial awakening at the time. Uh -huh. I remember seeing this documentary and there was a Korean guy holding a sign and it was like a rally the day after the riots. And I had never seen it before, but the sign said, uh, responsible are government and white. <laughs> mm. And it was just like interesting to see like them recognizing the racial context during that time or whatever. It was. I, I always felt like it was also... The moment we collectively became, that we got our American membership card, it was that day, April 29th, 1992. It was when, when Koreans became American. We took up arms, fought for our property, you know, and were victimized. I mean, that's, that's pretty American. Yeah. Well, let's, let's rewind, actually. Your, your family came to the States, um, and obviously you grew up around L.A., but your upbringing was very different from your father's, for example. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and how and when did you really come to understand his experience as well? Uh, that's an ongoing question, I'd say. You know, I mean, if there's anything that's really caused me to have empathy with my father, I think it's becoming a father myself. You know, the process of having children is, you know, you relive your own childhood. So it's almost like you're living for the second time and remembering those things. And it's also then 
living the life your parents lived while they were raising you. So then you're in both, you, each day you're imagining yourself in both positions, each day that your child is alive. Yeah. And um, so I think that that's in the process, one of the, one of the uh, things about having children, I think, is examining my parents' lives in our relationship and um, seeing, you know, for as a child, all you see is a straight road, but as an adult looking back, you see all the junctures and, and see where they turned. And made choices. And made choices, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, what was their story? How would you describe it? You know, the, 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 I was told as, as a child that they came for our benefit, which I think is true. Heard that too. But as, I think is also not true. Uh, I think Asian Americans tend to believe it. You, you know, it's probably a bit of a manners thing that they that they're reluctant to say. Listen, we wanted a better life. We wanted to get out of Dodge, and shame prevents them from saying that. So they have to say, "We came for you." I always felt that um, that that was too much to put on a kid, and that we grow up. We meaning you and me. Uh, we grow up feeling like we owe our parents something. They made the choice to have us. Yes. And we don't owe our parents our lives. You know what I'm saying? We 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 should live our own lives. But you start that narrative when you're three, mm. it's hard to shake. There's some things that I would do different, that I am doing differently consciously. That's one of them is, you know, there are a lot of things about my childhood that I'm trying to give a replicate and some things that I'm not that component is something that I'm taking off the table another thing I'm taking off the table is shame I mean I feel like that's the cornerstone of my personality in a lot of ways was shame and I look back and I'm and now I'm trying to remove that cornerstone and what's I'm trying to complete the metaphor and heal I guess. replace it with uh, Pepsi cans and styrofoam <laughs> peanuts. Is that what's inside? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting because we are fed this narrative. And then when you grow up, you start to interrogate it and you discover that there's all these holes in your family story that you have mm, to fill in mm -hmm. yourself. Like, for me, I thought my dad, you know, he told me the same thing. Uh, we came to America for you, you know. And then only like two years ago, I learned that he uh, was instructed to come to America by his father. Uh, and that was during the time of the Taiwan Strait Crisis because we're from Taiwan. And that was when everyone was afraid that Taiwan was going to get bombed by China. And so he came to kind of like start a new branch of the family in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and then essentially failed to bring the rest of the family over, you know, because mm -hmm. Taiwan turned out okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that my whole reason for being in this country just like changed at the age of like 30. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, the, I recently uh, had a visit. My last visit to Korea was to promote searching and, and ended up spending some time with family. My parents, by... Uh, coincidence happened to be visiting. We went out to my grandmother's gravesite uh, with the rest of the family, and uh, which is a Korean tradition, and learned so many things. I could sense that my father's life was driven by the guilt of leaving his mother. You know, where was she? Uh, she was in Korea. She's she never left Korea. Yeah, the guilt of the estranged son, mm -hmm. an immigrant son, like that, my, my parents feel that so intense. So if you're leaving your mother, you're not going to say to your kids, I came here, you know, I wanted to get rich. Those things become real 
<laughs> you know, um, and you're a kid and you, you the, for, for, even for my dad, I feel like the, <laughs> I, I'm just, let's for convenience sake call it a lie, but the lie becomes real, psychologically real for him and we're the reason he can't, you know what I mean? Um, it's a story you tell yourself. Everyone yeah, tells themselves yeah. a story. Well, your dad was a minister, right? That's right, yeah. How did that impact you? How do you how do you feel like that shaped you? I mean, I don't I I'm very curious how your parents reacted when you became an artist, for example. You know, I was young enough to where they didn't take it seriously. I, I think that uh they're like, "Okay, he's trying something out." Uh I didn't think I could be an actor. I didn't think about that at all, but I was always a reader and I was always drawing so I'm, maybe it wasn't that surprising to them there was something like um, also theatrical about preaching and you know being sort of immersed in other people's emotional lives and yeah did you ever tell them you wanted to be a rock star I don't know what they I don't I'm trying to remember what they no I don't know <laughs> you have a band too right it's, I did still, yeah do you still no, have no. it no Okay. No. But a lot of your songs, which are on Spotify, might I add, <laughs> um, they're they're beautiful, like this sort of, I don't know how you describe it, but it's like this really melodic pop indie rock, very introspective, it's a lot of the songs that I've heard. You know, it's interesting that I always, I, th I think like there's two kinds of music, like there's music that you listen to with other people, and that's the fun stuff. Um, that's the music my wife likes. And then I always thought of music as his personal experience, like with the headphones in. And my favorite songs are the ones I enjoy in the car alone, driving. And, yeah. and it's like, it's either personal or social. And I guess I was always into the personal stuff. And maybe that comes from a religious background too, because, you know, I mean, most of these songs are Christian songs are look inside you, you suck, right? <laughs> You should probably <laughs> change because <laughs> you're a piece of shit. Um, you're a piece of shit. And in that grand tradition, you started writing songs. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever, like, has your parents, do you think your parents, like, watch your movies and your TV shows? Like, I ask because, like, I don't think my mom's ever read anything I've written, so. Um, yeah, I mean, they they go out, they, they like it. Um, I think at the beginning, I always tell this story, like, when I was doing plays, they were like, what? Um, we're not going to, <laughs> we're not leaving the house at 6.30 <laughs> and then going to downtown. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, when the Korea Times ran a small story on me that's when i was legit well that's true oh, wow. validation man is being in the ethnic newspaper yeah. i still get like um my in-laws are japanese and my my wife's grandma used to give me rafu shimpo clippings clippings yeah. all the time yeah um i've been trying to make it to the world journal myself uh <laughs> <laughs> in terms of though your career, uh, when you you did start out uh, doing theater with East West Players, for example, which is an institution here in LA, an institution of Asian American theater, and some of your earlier films, your earliest films, are considered now, I think, Asian American indie film classics mm -hmm. like Shopping for Fangs or Yellow or Better Luck Tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But then your big break was in an American Pie movie yeah. and then movies, right, as mm -hmm. you came on to the sequels. 
And that really seemed to to launch your career. Yeah, I mean, that movie was so widely seen. It's hard to imagine a comedy doing something like that in 2020. And I'm still recognized for it. Still? After all the other things that you've done? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends on the countries, too. You know, it it depends on whether they've released it recently on their cable or whatever. But yes, a lot. And it's extraordinary. And it, it, it also, you know, it started off my career in comedy, which was a place that I didn't I didn't have any particular attraction to it. I enjoyed comedies a lot. I just didn't think of myself as a comedic actor in any way. But so I was there for a while doing comedies. Um, And um, it also introduced fame into my life. And it was a weird way to start that relationship because of the part, because I didn't feel that it matched my personality even. You know, like it didn't seem of me. And, You're not um, a MILF guy you know, yeah. <laughs> MILF at guy your core. Number, you don't seem like MILF guy number two. You know? So um, I'm really kind of coming to grips now mm-hmm. with being a known person. I mean, it's, it was such a strange thing. Huh. And I don't carry myself particularly well in public as a result. You I don't think, think so? Why do you, what do you mean by that? You know, I think if I had written, if I had uh, gotten the Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> and people were on the street going, Nobel Peace Prize guy! Uh, high five. I'd be high-fiving back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Peace, Middle East, me. Uh, but, um, but you know, being the MILF guy, you wanted to go, hey, shh, shh, shh. It made me sort of want to crawl under a rock. As, as grateful as I am for that break, it also, I had that, this very equally um, strong feeling of, wanting to crawl under a rock. Yeah, both of those things can be true. What's strange is, and this sort of uh, loops back to our conversation earlier about parents and shame. You know, I I noticed, I had noticed when I I had my son, who was first, that he was very comfortable among adults. And maybe that's genetic or whatever, but I was trying to figure it out. Like, why is he so um, unafraid of adults? I was so scared of adults as a kid. Maybe it was the time, too. Adults weren't particularly friendly when I was a kid to children. But I came up with this other theory, which may or may not be true, which was that my parents were also afraid of the outside world. They had a relationship of fear. These people were more powerful. They could take something from us. They could hurt us. And so when we went, exited our front door and went into the world, it was... Tighten up your abs, mm. get ready to get punched. Do you think that was because of the journey that they had in in life? I'm sure that was from real data, real mm-hmm. life, mm-hmm. real life mm-hmm. experience that showed them. Yes, you they got punched in the gut a few times, and then they learned to tighten up. I was thinking, I wonder if my son has a different relationship to the outside world because strangers come up to his dad and shake his dad's hand. Mm-hmm. And so he may, maybe his perception of the world is completely different. That the world is a very friendly place. Well, your parents told you that. Are are you telling your your children a version of that too? Be afraid people are going to take something from you. No, I don't, I'm I'm trying not to mm-hmm. to do that. Also, um, your kids see their dad's face in movies, which is a huge thing. I think for any we've sheltered our children from my face. They don't know. <laughs> wait, do they not know that their dad's a movie star? Uh, they know that I'm an actor, but we don't take them to premieres or 
any place where anyone's photographing me mm-hmm. or they'll visit set sometimes. But that's just a curiosity thing. We love going, looking at the props and, you know, they, they love my trailer because <laughs> there's a fridge in there. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, <laughs> stuff like that. But we've been very active, very active in trying to prevent them from. What's the reason for that? I'm selfish. I want my relationship. I want them to know me through firsthand experience and not what the world thinks of me. Their dad has got to be their dad and there's got to be one way to know me, which is as their dad. Right. You want to have the relationship on your own terms. That's right. Yeah. That must be something that is hard to get when you're so famous and everyone has all of these I ideas. I don't think I'm you. that famous. I think. <laughs> well, I mean, we're are gassing you up. We're like biggest movie star. <laughs> well, well, it's it's really interesting. I wish actually uh, this is a secondary thing. Like I, we need to have discussions about fame because it is consuming our society. It is our currency. People. It's like money now, and people are saving up likes and saving up followers and banking them. They're investments, you know what I'm saying? In what? I don't know. It remains to be seen, but people are accruing followers, accruing likes, accruing thumbs-ups and hearts, and they're saving like they'd save, uh, you know, birthday checks. And I don't know what it's all about. Fame is everyone has a broadcasting device in their pockets. Everyone is a broadcaster. Everyone has access to be famous. All you have to do is have someone punch you in the nuts. With, well, know, on video, as long as on it's on video. video. No, that's true. Right? You just have and to so, like move to Los Angeles and get an agent or something. But nobody knows exactly what fame does because people who are famous don't like to talk about being famous, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. You know, And I'm trying to think more explicitly about it because it is a a driver in our world more than ever, ever before. And it's a platform. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, I have a a complicated relationship with that word, platform. It's like what I, you know, I've kind of went dark on Twitter and Instagram for a while. Part of it was everyone wanted me to comment on something. And I'm like, I'm not a politician. Um, I don't want a platform even. To some extent, I don't want one. Um, And... I guess once you build the platform, people expect you to come out and say something about everything and in, even interpret the absence of of comment as a commentary. Or they look to you for answers, right? It's not appropriate. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a guy who puts on makeup, you know? <laughs> You're an actor. I'm an actor. So uh, I I get it and I don't get it. You know what I mean? Um, but my point is that all of this is stuff we're not talking enough about. It is a beverage that's available to everybody. We have to say, what is it doing to us? Right. Is that also sort of a strange place to find yourself in as somebody who came up among this generation of Asian-American actors and artists and filmmakers at a time when that, you know, like there weren't crazy rich Asians. You know, there wasn't Parasite winning Mm -hmm. multiple historic Oscars Mm -hmm. and uh, like – Better Luck Tomorrow, for example, had to scrap its way to an independent film release, you know, driving audiences uh, through, like, community outreach, that kind of thing. You know, like, mm-hmm. you've you've had that end of the experience and then juxtaposed with the the sort of Hollywood side of it. 
does that also make it a little bit more complicated? You know, in some ways, it it doesn't seem like a lot of progress. It seems like a lot of progress, but then it doesn't. Yeah. And I don't know what the success of anything, what, what one thing means for us collectively. I mean, I guess it gets down to also this, the real basic question of Asian American identity, which is that we're not all Asian. Asian is a made up term, you know, is a made up group. We did it for political reasons because they all say Ching Chong. We're like, we should lock arms. They think we're all the same anyway. Let's lock arms and be a group, be a political group. And then it's also like an adolescent thing. I think for me, I was, as a kid, I identified as Korean. I was told I was Korean. And then as I, and then as I became an adult, or became a teenager and was trying to individuate myself from my family, I was like, I'm going to be Asian, which is, sounds more American, I guess, or different, but it's less specific. It's much more mm-hmm. nebulous. So, I mean, I think that that's the framework for understanding all of this. It's like, does Better Luck Tomorrow lead to something else for Asians? I don't know. Yeah, we've seen so many different eras of representation. Like when I saw the movie, like Chan is Missing and saw yes. that, it was made in 1982. And Chan is Missing is this really interesting Wayne Wang film about, uh, it's a mystery story set in SF Chinatown. The questions they were exploring in Chan is Missing, like, is being Asian giving up all the Asian part of yourself and adopting Mm -hmm. American culture? Or is it going back to Asia? Or is it this thing? You know, the questions that were still being raised in 1982 are still being raised today. And that's the thing that floored me is like, oh, like, Mm -hmm. these questions never go away. Yeah, it's sometimes like it's it's encouraging in the sense that uh, multiple generations have dealt with it. And sometimes it's... uh, Depressing. I think from a perspective as an artist, it's hard to see, you know, what the impact of representation in art is, you know. I know that your roles have all, like, meant a lot to me personally, like seeing wow. you and Harold well, and that's Kumar. that's very moving. No, I mean, you're the only guy out there, man. Like, there, there's <laughs> no one else. You know, I grew up in Tennessee. Anytime I would see someone Asian in popular culture, I'd spend a long time Googling and searching about them and... You it know. was my, um, that experience, I had the same experience, like, um, minus the Google, but it was so positive to see, like, George Takei on Star Trek, mm-hmm. so exciting. On the flip side, it was so depressing to see people speaking Japanese on MASH, you know, or and all that stuff. It was so scarring. It has been a bit of my guide, just, like, imagining myself as 12 years old and going, would, would, would that would. guy appreciate this role or would he be bummed out? So I consult my 12-year-old self a lot. You know, earlier on, there were a lot of things that were borderline. I'd always turned down the the explicitly racist stuff right right off the bat, but there were a lot of things that were borderline and uh so there was there is like an Asian guy network that I would call and and be like, "Okay, so the part is Huh. Who else is, was in this network? Uh guys I went to high school with and then after a while, uh, Harold from Harold and Kumar the um, actual Harold. The actual yeah. Harold. We're we're very close friends, and um, I Wait like his angle because he's also he wants me to succeed. Mm. <laughs> he wants me to make money, <laughs> <laughs> so he's a great sounding board. There's an actual Harold. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm yes, there is oh, an yeah. actual Harold. Um, oh my god, you should see Frank's what? face right now. <laughs> uh, That's amazing. Love it. I love hanging I, with Harold. I always say this because uh, uh, I told him I was coming here. And I talked, I talked to him about this. You ran it by him. Mm-hmm. I ran it by him. Mm-hmm. What did he say? Uh, he likes it. But you're saying, like, even back earlier in your career, you would sort of be like, hey, guys, mm-hmm. what do you think about this? Where's, where's the line? Yes. 
you know, we get we get into the weeds about stereotypes, but yeah. like there's there's an anti-stereotype that references the stereotype. Like you could be Asian uh playboy. And that and if that's played for laughs, you go, what what are we laughing at? Are we we're laughing at the stereotype? It's just I'm not playing a stereotype. So it's like, what are we doing really here? That's a lot of Asian representation today. Is mm-hmm. is is sort of the, the uh, in popular culture. That's how they get around it. Is is by trying to subvert subvert. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which I references think, the yeah. stereotype very yeah. directly. I think there's a whole process. Like the stereotypes are applied to you, they hurt you, and then you define yourself in relation to the stereotypes. And then you figure out who you are after all this crap is, you know, off of your chest. You know, and I, I think we're we're starting to move into that phase where, like, we're no longer defined by, like, what hurt us. Yeah. I'm thinking back to the Shane Gillis thing. I mean, right, like, before Shane Gillis was fired from SNL, when yeah. the, his comments I mean, I think surfaced. what bothered me, I, I, I don't, I didn't even, I didn't do much research into it or anything, but I read about it. In the Los Angeles Times. Oh, the great record of note. Oh, thank you. Uh, we but uh, what bothers me about it, and I think what we have to think about is why does he, and many comedians as a matter of fact, feel that they can do racist jokes about Asians and they get to say, don't you have a sense of humor? Mm-hmm. And it makes me think that what they really want to do is do N word jokes, but they think, I- I'm going to take heat for that. I'll go take it to the wussies, you know, the people who won't complain. And, like, and we have to, we have to bite, you know, when that happens. And why, like, how come, like, when we say it's not funny, they just tell us we don't have a sense of humor? You That's, know? Uh, I mean, in a way, I think there's like a weird connection to rape culture, too, which is like, you know, kind of bullying a woman into sex. Uh, what do you, what do you, uh, uh, what are you frigid? What are you? What are you? What are you uptight? You know, can't you take a joke? You know, it's a bullying disguised in this in humor, and I hate it. Do you feel like? I mean, you you talked you talked about your reluctance to use social media to sort of make those kinds of commentaries, but I feel like a lot of your roles are in themselves radical choices. Yeah, I mean, listen. The the experience of watching somebody, um, watching a story, you can get to people. I, frankly, am suspicious of the medium, uh, the, the ability of the medium, of this electronic medium, to change anybody's mind about anything. I, I could be wrong. It's just, my, that's my observation, is that no one seems to be changing anyone's mind. Um, and then there's just spending time in a place that's not this world. And you're leaving your family. You're, you're going, you're, I'm leaving this room and going up there. And uh, is that good? I don't know. Um, I'm guessing not. Yeah. You know? And I noticed an improvement in my mood when I was doing less of it. And alternately, you know, um, an increase in anxiety when I was on it, thinking about what others thought about me. Totally. Which is a, yeah. um, a terrible place to be, especially if a lot of people know who you are. Because then your anxiety can be multiplied by thousands and thousands. 
More of our conversation with the actor John Cho coming back after this short break. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's the rest of our conversation with John Cho. I'm curious though, when um, in 2016, a screenwriter named William Yu created a hashtag and that hashtag was starring John Cho. And it was basically envisioning you in all of these huge Hollywood marquee films and blockbusters to to ask why aren't there more Asian American stars getting these sorts of chances and what was it like for you to to like realize that this was happening that strangers were were advocating using your face and and like championing for it you? was weird um i mean it was the idea was really cool um and what he was saying i was 100% behind shout I'm, out to will you shout out to will you and he's a, a really um smart smart guy um and i thank him it, you know for getting that discussion started it wasn't really about me obviously it was mm-hmm. um as an artist i don't know whether uh, i was thinking boy i need to be in like the i don't Martian, really or whatever you know what was. i'm saying like yeah. i don't have a um that's important i guess to some people to, uh, in the bigger picture, we need an Asian superhero. Uh, I don't really care about superhero movies personally. Um, so that that part of it, the political part of it, I'm disconnected from emotionally. And so, but that's what he was talking about, mm-hmm. the political part. He wasn't saying John Cho should be in a great performance. You know, he should work with Scorsese or Soderbergh. He was saying he should be in The Avengers or whatever. And that's an interesting argument. I'm not emotionally connected to that argument, but I get it and I support it. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I also think part of the argument is just like John Cho is like incredibly underrated. And I wish that I had seen him in all of his movies too. I, I for, for me, that was like one of the things that, that spoke to me about that. I thought you were really good as the romantic lead in Harold and Kumar, for example, right? You know, I know, like, it probably feels weird to get so many props for, you know, just getting the girl or whatever. Like, but, you know, I was definitely one of those guys who who were kind of, like, giving (laughs) you the props. Like, Mm -hmm. you, like, yeah, kind of made people feel like they could get the girl. Growing Mm -hmm. up in Tennessee where, you know, there wasn't a lot of dating opportunities for Asian guys. So, yeah. Yeah. But how does that make you feel to get, like, props for that? Even to hear that. Yeah. You know? Well, that's really, um, really cool. Um, and it bums me out, which is the other side of being, <laughs> of it being really cool. Like it bums me out that, that, that it's informed by that makes me think of, you know, I always wanted to do a movie as a Valentine for Asian American men. That was, um, me just killing people like kill bill. Cool action hero. No, just a murderous <laughs> rampage. <laughs> And because I do feel like Asian American men, no one knows this except Asian American men, uh, at least for a portion of our lives, we walk around with, um, in our pocket is a clenched fist. And we're ready, we're ready to fight because people have been shitting on our heads all our lives. 
and like, you know, I just feel like that there is an ultraviolent streak in so many Asian American men because of that anger, because of that emasculation. I mean, the ang- I, I got chills when you said that because like, yeah, I think anger is a natural state for Asian American men, but also Asian American women. Like, you know, like it's a different type of anger based on the genders. But, you you know, you just spend all of your life being told that you're something that you're not. Mm-hmm. You're, you yeah. spend your life trying to be bigger than the stereotypes applied to. I, I look around and I think I see um, and this is different from our father's. Our fathers did not grow up with that. They 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 come here and they experience racism, but nobody's changing their minds about who they are. You know, my dad is Korean. He's a man. He's proud of who he is. He he knows who he is. And you can ching chong him to death. He doesn't give a shit. But us, his his sons, we're different. We when we were soft and malleable, we got told we weren't worth anything. And then we believe them, you know. And so it's so then we grow up with that anger. My my dad doesn't have any of that. Yeah, and we want to be treated better than that, you know. Like I yeah. think I want more than to be able to like earn a living and send money home to my family. You know, I want I want citizenship like everyone else has. You know, I want I want identity and 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 personhood. You know, that's why it's complicated too. I mean, all these cinematic victories also have a kind of you know, I'm not sure what it means for Asian Americans, for you and me. Well, okay, when you took on, for example, your upcoming, big upcoming lead role in Cowboy Bebop, how do you describe to people who don't know at Cowboy Bebop what this project is? I don't bother describing it. <laughs> I say it's based on a Japanese anime. If you know it, you'll know it. <laughs> it's the best. It's the best. Because it's hard to say what it is. Um, you know, you don't know it's a pipe until you look at it. And then you go, that's well, what a pipe. about the people who don't know what it is? That was you a know? really weird metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> people who don't know Cowboy Bebop previously. It's, it's, it takes place, um, you know, in a post-apocalyptic uh, galaxy. Um, we're bounty hunters um, and going from job to job. Uh, and um, the, the series is afraid, not afraid to... Um, to roam, you know, and and do things that are narratively strange, and um, and the music is an incredibly important part of it, you know, which is uh, sets him up as a cowboy and um, a noir figure, uh, a detective. Um, yes, and it, so it's sort of almost um, like all my dream roles into one or like all these genres into one uh, role. Why is it important to you to take roles like that that aren't, you know, in your face about the Asianness? They aren't identifiably Asian oh. like that. You know, I don't consider myself Asian first. Mm-hmm. And the world does or Americans do because we're obsessed with, with it. Mm-hmm. But I consider myself, I don't know, maybe first male. You know, and then husband, father, um, son, um, artist, and then, you know, like seventh or eighth is Asian probably mm-hmm. in terms of how, how I think about myself, mm-hmm. you know. And so uh, I, I suspect that most people are like me. And so for 
you know, from a character point of view, it seems false for people to be talking about being Asian or you only do that when you're doing a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, so narratively, I think it doesn't really work well. Um, yeah. That's really it. And then, um, you know, ironically, like Searching was a movie that didn't kind of wear its Asianness on its sleeve. And on the other hand, it was incredibly specific. You know, we worked hard and I... Um, there were some misses, but for me, we I was trying to bring a lot of stuff from my personal life into it. And I'm married to an Asian woman and have um we have Asian children, shockingly. And what? um really? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I was like, this here. is the culture's gonna be there. <laughs> yeah. You know, just trust it. Like it's gonna come out. And people really um e- people were even interpreting things as Asian things that weren't that we didn't Oh, interesting we didn't put in there or think about. I felt like it was a very Asian-American family. Right. It was, it, yeah. It, it was, was also set in the Bay Area, so it felt very authentic that's right, in that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, there's a way to get at culture without getting at culture. Mm-hmm. And there's a way to get at race without getting at race. Maybe that's an Asian-American thing. Maybe that's not an African-American thing. Um, that maybe that's our journey as a as a culture. Um, as a people to, you know, but, um, that's what works for me, has worked for me as I move forward and I'm trying to look for things to do. I found that, you know, when white writers are tasked with writing for Asians, it's even the, 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 um, the best ones, the most well-intentioned ones have difficulty and it really bumps them. And the writing becomes very much, even if it's not on the, even if it's not textual, um, you really get the feeling that the thing that they're pushing most is the race. And, um, you know, I think recently made a decision that like whatever character I play will be Asian because it's me and I really have to step back from it. And um, so... I think I'm trying to avoid things that are written Asian because then they'll be false because we don't walk around with that. Um, I don't know. You mean putting the Asian first? Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I mean, you know what I mean? That makes total sense to me. I mean, I used to write about the San Gabriel Valley, Monterey Park. And Mm -hmm. when I would describe the area, like editors would want me to say like, oh, yeah, say that there's neon and Chinese Chinese on the signs and stuff. Mm -hmm. Give them a little of that Asian flavor. Oh, the flavor. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like that's not how they define themselves. You know, when you you take that away, when a movie like Searching kind of just lets you define it yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's more. Well, the other, the other, you know, big picture wise, the you know, um, the last component, my, my most recent component, as we said earlier, you know, it's a lifelong journey, sort of unpacking your race and your culture and your parents and all that. Uh, I think I'm in this phase now, especially since 2016, uh, of unpacking the other side, which is what is white. You know, and that's, I think, equally important to understanding, to, to our self-understanding. Yes, yeah. Like what that is, because we think that that's normal and we're east of normal, we're oriental. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And um, 
and so we, we there's one thing to take pride in being east of normal and now that we actually part of the job is to go there's no center mm-hmm. you know and understanding what that is or what um, normal is defined as or what like the default who defined is. it yeah you know exactly. um how it gets defined and and i think that's important for asian americans as well i'm japanese american fourth generation i don't speak japanese although many people have who are not asian have expected that of me in my life i for sure do not speak korean mm-hmm. um but i love i love movies i cover mm-hmm. movies here of, of of all kinds um at the la times and i've gladly covered bong joon ho's career in parasite but i too had to learn you know the names and, and proper naming conventions of all of the the stars and and makers of parasite which is something that a lot of people in the media don't seem to bother to yeah. to do I, listen i i i'm completely with you like it is completely acceptable not to no, you guys are American. Like, yeah. why? Yeah, why, would, why wouldn't know? we know? Like, it's completely acceptable not to know. It's um, not acceptable to not do the work. Mm-hmm. Of course, and it drives me nuts. I watch a lot of uh, basketball, and these guys on, you know, on a Slovenian name will just butcher the name. And I'm like, you know, it's your job to announce these players' names. There's only ten on the court at a time, mm-hmm. and there's maybe two of them from Slovenia. You know, that's you. Find out there's probably a guide in the program that you got and just look it up. Yeah. I don't understand why people don't do that. Yeah. Um, it's it's insulting. Yeah. And you, you, you're going to say Antetokounmpo, you got to just learn how to say it. Yeah. You know, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not that hard, actually, yeah. once, when uh, it's really weird and revealing what types of pronunciations people are willing to learn. Like, I can say prosciutto, I can say bruschetta, I can say pepperoni. People can spell <laughs> Timothy Chalamet yeah. now and Sir Ronan. I, I do have a, a, a beef with restaurants that just say, our menus in French. Fuck you. Oh yeah, Italian <laughs> like, restaurants what? are like that. Man. Uh, what if what if a Chinese restaurant was like it's in Chinese? Figure it out, bitch. Oh, you, um, you put a Chinese menu in front of some people. They're like, oh, worse. The English menu is something mm-hmm. must have gone wrong. Like, come on, like. Like Italian menus are like salume, and then like I don't even know. Honestly, I'm googling and then tell you. Let me do a thought exercise. What is the thing going back to the, you know, what's the most authentic sushi place? You know, what's the hard most hardcore Korea? What is authenticity? What is that about? I I I mean, that's a really big question for me. Um. I have a theory, a little bit of a theory. Oh, it's it's, it's in sociology, and uh, you know, there's a recent book by Mark Podongpat who who talks about how you know a lot of Americans' first experience of Thai was through Thai food, mm. you know, and so because they their first experience of Thai culture was through Thai food, they uh, are conditioned to want things like authenticity, and so they understand Thai Americans through that lens of authenticity, and so many of the ways in which Americans are exposed to Asian cultures are through this lens of authenticity, or any any culture, right, right, yeah. right, immigrant cultures mm-hmm. specifically, and so like. That's why, you know, they expect Thai Americans to know, like, all of these different flavors is because, you know, food is one reason. You know, food is a big way that Asian immigrants have kind of, like, navigated and, like, you know, created an existence in America. And it's, like, one of the only places in which, you know, if you're white or you're not familiar with immigrant cultures, that's the place where you touch it, you know. There is a kind of – I think there's um, – part of it is um, 
it shows a kind of courage to go to the deepest, darkest Africa, you know, into the heart of darkness and 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 come back alive, kind of a thing. Right. Although I will say the flip side of that is I've always felt like, um, as much as maligned as white Americans are in in this in this respect, um, they can be extraordinarily open. In a way that I look back at the country of my birth and I go, are Koreans, Koreans seem to be comparatively, you know, uh, much more closed off and much less accepting of difference. You know what I'm saying? So there's the good and the bad here, I should note, you know, that, um, I mean, we would not be here, all of us, meaning my family, without the kindnesses of, uh, Specifically, white churchgoers, you know I what I mean? Know. Yeah. Um, and they're even. I'm not sure what they thought about us. I can't say. And I'm not. I'm sure there were lots of things they didn't understand. I'm sure there were things that they were suspicious about. But still, you know, I owe them some of my sweetest memories. Are you know, are with them. Yeah, even in the modern day too. I mean, we can't yeah. waste anyone's goodwill. You know, my 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 editor is white. You know, the people who hired me at the LA Times are white. So right. so yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just point. it's all a part of like this is. Uh, I guess for for anyone listening from uh, I, this is a disclaimer from my from myself. This is all sort of thought exercises for me and trying to figure things out as I move forward. All right, we got to wrap up this conversation, unfortunately. We need to get to these bad Asian confessions that we talked about at the top of the show. Basically, we're going to share a time or a thing that's made us feel like we're not Asian enough with the idea of critiquing why. My bad Asian confession, well, I have so many. (laughs) But uh, this past uh, weekend, I went to uh, Kang Kang Food Court to do my, you know, coronavirus panic buying because they have this uh, a freezer there with a bunch of dumplings and bows and mantos. I bought six packs of dumplings. Uh, feeling like a king, you know, driving back home with all these dumplings in my cooler in my trunk. I get home. I get distracted by something. I leave them in the car. A uh, <laughs> couple days later, discover the melted frozen dumplings in my car. Just so wasteful. You know, I, I thought about what my mom would say. You know, I thought about what my dad would say. And I guess I just felt like a bad Asian because Asians are supposed to be frugal. You know, my mom and dad raised me that way. And my parents, when they were kids, they still remember being hungry. And I only really lost like $46 or something like that, nine cents based on the the pricing they have at Kang Kang. But like, you know, it still hurt to lose that amount of money. And uh, yeah, I just felt like such a terrible, terrible Asian. My bad Asian confession is that when I was a kid for about 10 years, I actually played this Japanese traditional instrument called the koto. The koto is this long wooden stringed zither that you play with ivory picks. When you're a kid, your grandmothers dress you up in kimonos and you're told to basically channel like a perfect doll as you sit there and and perform. I sight read Japanese music. I even like sang along phonetically in Japanese when I performed. And this is something that was a part of my life for a long time growing up. But around high school, I, I chose to stop taking these lessons in order to spend my spare time doing things like playing soccer. Um, and those things I also loved. Those are very much a, a part of who I am as well. But now that I'm 
older, I kind of regret stopping the koto lessons. I, I regret losing that part of my life. I still do have my koto at home here with me, and I, I break it out once a year just to see what I remember, if I can still play the songs and read the music. And sometimes I think about maybe taking up lessons again, um, but that is one thing that I, I look back and I, I can see that when I was that age, a very specific age, a specific time in my formative experience, I chose to say, I want to do something different. I want to explore a different part of myself. So that is my bad Asian confession. Okay, give it to us, John. What is your bad Asian confession? Uh, I tell white people that I will take them to Koreatown, and I... And that is a lie. <laughs> I, <laughs> I've never have, and I never will. Why is that? I don't want to be anyone's Sherpa. I don't want to take, I don't want to participate in this anthropological study that they're doing. I don't want to make anyone feel down. They are down or they're not. They can get Korean if they want. I don't know why I need to be there. I don't want to show open any doors for them if no one's opening it for them. I don't want to force open any door for them. I don't want to be the subject of a story, a cute story in Koreatown. Um, I don't want any part of it. Um, if they want to invite me, to go to Korean barbecue with them, we're going to dinner, that's different. But I will not take anyone down the Mississippi in a canoe. Feels like performing a little bit. Yeah, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna speak Korean, I'm gonna speak English, so they're gonna be disappointed. I don't wanna tell everyone what they're eating. These are all stuff that I saw my parents do and I hated it. I didn't, I hated it when they said, that's, we Koreans eat a dish called, that's actually octopus in there. I hope you like it. I don't want that. That's, that's, uh, I guess I have another bad Asian confession. I've taken a lot of white people to dim sum. <laughs> like, I have taken pretty much every white person I know to dim sum. I, can I just say, this is off track. Uh, I'm not into dim sum. Maybe that's my commitment. Oh, oh, okay. I like the food. I don't want it at 11 a.m. I do. <laughs> what they and I want it on the push cart, the little push there cart. There should be. Yes. There should be half the restaurant should be dim sum, then the other half should be cots. <laughs> uh, like yeah, yeah, we, right. it's it's too much at 11. That's, That's all day. I'm saying. Yeah, you, you, at 11. Do you have a bad Asian confession you want to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. Maybe we'll even play it on the show. And that's a wrap for this episode of Asian Enough. This episode was hosted by me, Jen Yamato, and my co-creator, Frank Shong. Our producer is Asal Asanapur, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Eben. 
Special thanks to Reed Johnson, Clint Schaff, Shelby Grad, Shawnee Hilton, and Jeff Berkshire. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of our founding producer, Lina Anwar, who produced the original version of this episode with Rena Pelta. And hey, if you love our podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram and send in your confessions. We love hearing from you. We'll be back next week with a delicious new episode of Asian Enough. My co-hosts Tracy Brown and Johanna Buya will be talking to the oh-so-charming celebrity chef Sola L. Whaley. I, white chefs have this freedom that they can just, you know, become an expert in whatever they want and they're accepted as an expert in whatever cuisine they're, like, passionate about, whatever they're drawn to. And I feel like when you're a person of color, it's just like, well, you must, you must write about chat. You must know all about chat. <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah, I really like chat, but... You know, I'm also really into chili rellenos because I'm from L.A. (laughs) So um, I just wish we could be more our whole selves, you know. And remember, if you ever see John Cho out on the street, do not call him the MILF guy. Maybe try this line. Nobel Peace Prize guy. (laughs) 